This is exactly right. Case Files, an award-winning podcast, presents unforgettable true crime stories. Presented by an anonymous host, Case File delves deep into the crimes, investigations, and trials of solved and cold cases from around the world. With more than 250 episodes, the podcast has covered infamous unsolved mysteries, notorious murders, and lesser-known cases that deserve more attention. Discover why everyone from Rolling Stone to Time Magazine is calling it a must-listen experience. Follow Case File wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them. Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes. And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries. Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens. Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold. This is Buried Bones. Hey, Paul. Hey, Kate. How are you doing? Doing really well. Super busy here. How about you? Yeah. No, I've, I've been busy myself. My, now, my understanding is, is your other podcast, uh, Tenfold More Wicked, is what, halfway through its season? Yeah, we're in the middle of season eight. Wow. And uh, boy, I know. It feels like I can't even believe it. I'm, <laughs> I'm in awe that I even did one season of that show, let alone eight seasons. It's been quite a trek. And you have pop up in a couple of my seasons. I use you, of course, as a forensic expert. So I've interviewed you several times for that show. That's right. And this season is about a serial poisoner, maybe. Okay. She may be a poisoner. We're not really sure. You have to find out to the end. But we're about halfway through. And this takes place in 1910 New Orleans, which you can imagine is just one big party that time period in New Orleans was amazing. So we've got a lot of great jazz music. And we've got a woman who is very, very, very suspicious. And more and more family members show up dead in her family. And she has a lot of problems within her family. So it's been quite a roller coaster of a story for our listeners so far. Well, I imagine like with New Orleans, I mean, you also have the uh, witch doctors down there at that time, right? Mm-hmm. I'm looking for a really good witch doctor story. <laughs> I'm ready. I'd love to do a voodoo story sometime. I just haven't gotten a hold of one yet. I, I bet I'll get some responses after this pitch. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Well, so any of our listeners who don't already listen to Tenfold More Wicked, this is a great time to pop over and do some binge listening. And then, of course, we'll have a third season after that. That's the way we work. We work in batches of three. So we're halfway through our three seasons. We're halfway through the season. So it's very exciting. Oh, that's That's cool. I don't know how you juggle all these podcasts. Me either. I have no witchcraft, I think. That's what I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure. Caffeine. <laughs> yep. No, I, I definitely live off the caffeine, for sure. Well, let's switch over to this story, which is set in South Carolina, which is where I've always wanted to go visit. Have you been to South Carolina? I know I ask you this with every story, but I'm interested in knowing where you have traveled to. Yeah, you know, I actually drove for my show that I had on oxygen, the DNA of murder. I did a case out in Atlanta and then drove from Atlanta 
Atlanta up to South Carolina. It was interesting because that's really the first time I'd experienced that part of the country and all the vegetation that's out there and the humidity. So (laughs) (laughs) the blasted humidity. What are we going to call that kind of travel? Is that like forensic travel where you don't talk about the food and you don't talk about the music, but you talk about the crime scene conditions (laughs) and the environment? (laughs) You know, that's that's really how I know, you know, like my old jurisdiction, when I go out to the Bay Area, you know, I'm not looking at the touristy spots. I'm going, oh, I did a homicide there. I responded <laughs> out to that case there. And now when I go to a state, you bring up a state, I go, oh, I was in that state because of this case. That's how I just associate, you know, my travels. One of my favorite places to visit is Northern California. And I would go to this place called the Pelican Inn. Probably some people have been there before. It's like a Mm. a British tavern. And you have to get down there on a really windy road. Every time I drive that road, I think, God, what a great place to dump a body. I mean, you will never find somebody if you do that. And I think it's a terrible thing. And it's usually so do the people in the car I'm with. (laughs) Well, that's, you know, I mean, that's just the reality. It's just like within my county, Contra Costa County, there were particular roads in which we would have, you know, bodies being dumped over the years. And it's because they were remote. There was a steep, usually, you know, steep side down into a creek and somebody could go out there, pull a body out, and the body would just disappear down the slope. And then they would drive off and nobody would ever see them. And then years later, and it was typically, you know, back in the 70s, it was the bottle collectors that would find the bodies. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah now it's a lot of hikers. We, we get a lot of hikers who find by swimmers and stuff. Yeah, you know, we get the hikers out on the trails up in the hills finding the, you know, like, skeletal remains. But the creek beds, you know, that's where all these old antique bottles have been buried in the silt forever. So these bottle collectors would be out there and they would be the ones that would find these bodies that would be down in the creek or near the creeks. I can think of five cases I've written about where kids were the ones who found the bodies or the big clues because they were just out there dinking around, you know, playing around, and all of a sudden they run into this terrible thing. So, yes, we should do some sort of gruesome tourist travel thing where I think this would be a great place to cover up a murder. (laughs) And you would say, yes, and here's why. Sure. (laughs) Okay, let's get into this story. Let's set the scene. So this is, as I mentioned, South Carolina, 1961, South Carolina. And this victim just is an average Joe, it seems like from the very beginning, just an average guy. He's 63-year-old cab driver, John Orner. And he was a World War I and World War II vet. And they used to call him Yankee John (laughs) because he's in South Carolina. So (laughs) they called him Yankee John. And he was a cab driver. He was just out and about. And we know that no matter what the time period was, don't you believe that cab drivers have a certain amount of vulnerability like real estate agents do, like like a lot of people do who are in those kinds of jobs? You're on your own and you're encountering the public. Well, and that's that's really the primary characteristic is that isolation. When offenders are looking at committing crimes, they are looking for victims that are isolated. And when they have a business reason to interact with that victim, such as hailing a cab, mm-hmm. it makes it so much easier because there isn't any suspicion there. And then, like with a cab driver, the danger is, is that you get somebody sliding into the back seat. Next thing you know, you've got a gun put to your head and there's nothing you can do. Funny you should mention that because that's where we're heading. Okay. 
John Werner is driving and he gets a dispatch call and they've told him to go make a pickup at the NCO club at Fort Jackson in Columbia. So this is really his bread and butter. He had an awful lot of soldiers as clients at Fort Jackson. And so this would have not been surprising at all. This would have been a very typical fare for him. But it was late, like I said, 11.15, and he decided he wanted to just go home instead. So he headed home to his wife, but when he went off duty, so the last time the dispatcher heard from him, 11.45 p.m., that was it. That was the last time anyone saw him alive. And like I said, he turned down this call and he decided to head home to his wife. It's 1961. He probably didn't call her from anywhere. I think he just was heading home. This was something that I think surprised his wife when he didn't show up at home. And the alarm was sounded at 7.30 the next morning because his 1957 Chevy cab was found abandoned in downtown Columbia, so in the city where he worked, and there was a huge amount of blood inside the vehicle, but Warner was nowhere to be found. Hmm. Yeah, so that's obviously not a good sign. You know, sometimes, you know, you're talking about the amount of blood inside this vehicle. There are times when maybe somebody, you know, they have an injury as a result of a fight with an offender. Maybe they're abducted or not. You don't know if they're alive or dead. However, when you have a vehicle that has, let's say, a very, very large blood pool in there, Mm -hmm. then you're going, okay, this person died, was in there for, you know, a period of time, enough for the blood to pool. And then for whatever reason, their body has been removed to a different location. I would even suspect just off, you know, not knowing any more details, the reason why there's, let's say, a large amount of blood inside of this vehicle is that the offender possibly commandeered this cab after killing John and then drove to a location before banning the cab. And now John's bleeding out inside the cab. And then for whatever reason, now his body has been taken out of it. And this is really interesting because we're in a cab. You can tell how far he's gone and dispatch has noted how many miles are on his car. And so this is a little confusing to me. So hopefully you can untangle what happens next. Two days, they're looking for this man who has lost a large amount of blood and they're presuming is dead. They're assuming the killer took him somewhere. As you said, we don't know why. We don't know where. So two days after the car was found, which is about four days after he disappeared, his body was found dumped on the side of Highway 601, which is about 25 miles from Columbia. He's face down on an embankment and he's been shot by a gunshot wound to the head. And the police say that it looks like whomever was sitting in the back seat of his cab fired from behind, and they gathered three bullet fragments from his head. Okay. So the autopsy must have shown a back-to-front trajectory of the bullet. Mm -hmm. So you have a customer sliding into the back seat and then literally just shoots him in the back of the head. Yep. John was done for the night— Mm-hmm. He refused the one fair. Mm-hmm. So now I'm wondering if in route home, someone flagged him down and him just being a nice guy was like, okay, well, I, I guess I can go ahead and just accept this one. But he doesn't call it in. Nope. That becomes interesting to me. Why doesn't he call it in? Is this something he normally would do on the side or right. is it was just this the one off you know he sees a guy and he goes well I'll just go ahead I'm a cab driver I might as well get this guy wherever he needs to go 
Well, here are some more confusing details to me. So his vehicle's found in Colombia. His body is found 25 miles away in a remote area, and I'll show you a photo in a second. There is $17.55 on the meter. And what the dispatcher says is that means that his cab had been driven somewhere around 80 miles after that last trip that he had registered with the dispatch. So this mystery trip was somewhere around 80 miles. But the car was abandoned in downtown Columbia. So does that mean he was killed in the cab somewhere, dumped 25 miles away, and then this person drove another 50-something miles? Well, the sequence right now is probably unclear in terms of was he killed early on in the confrontation? Was he forced to drive to various locations and then killed? It dawns on me in 1961... Customers aren't paying with credit cards then. They're paying with cash. Right. So I would imagine dispatch would have an idea on the amount of money that would have been inside this cab. And now I'm looking, okay, is is there a financial motive? Did they determine how much money was either left behind or taken by the offender? You're batting a thousand so far, Paul, because you said back (laughs) in the head, which you were right. So he was missing about $25, which is the only amount that he was known to have on him. Police are assuming he carried that around to be able to make change. You're right. They're not using a credit card or check or anything. This is going to be purely cash, most likely. His pockets had been turned out, and he was missing that money. So it does seem right now that robbery was a motive. Okay, so that makes sense. Now, the distance that the cab has been driven doesn't, if this is strictly a robbery. Where his body's at, 25 miles out, and then the amount of miles on the cab, I'm almost wondering if the offender utilized the cab because of the type of vehicle it was. It looks like a cab. It may have given the offender sort of a, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing could blend into wherever or whatever the offender was trying to do, but also decided to take John's $25 while he had access to it. Yeah. So you're thinking maybe not just robbery as a motive, that something else might have been going on around there. I think so. You know, with the amount of miles driven, you know, here you've got a cab that, you know, I don't know how they would have communicated if it had been stolen, but it's at Mm -hmm. risk for the offender to stay in that cab for a long period of time. Yeah. So he did it for a reason. You're right. Yes. And what I'm confused about is I'm showing you a photo right now of where his body was found, not the cab. Big difference between downtown Columbia, South Carolina, and 25 miles away in a rural area. And I was just trying to figure out why drive him all that way? Why not just dump him in a gutter in the city somewhere? It just doesn't make any sense to me. You know, that's assuming that the offender drove specifically out to this location to dispose of his body. Mm -hmm. It's possible that whatever the offender was doing and utilizing the cab for may have taken them out at this location and then realized, hey, this is is nice, isolated, nobody's on the road, I can get rid of the body Mm -hmm. before going back into town. Drug deal, maybe? Is this a drug dealer or somebody who's doing other business in a cab and needs this cab? And just like you said, it's a robbery and dumps the body on his way to do other errands. You know, I wouldn't eliminate that as a possibility, but I also, I'm just not familiar enough with the predominant crimes going on in the area at the time. Mm -hmm. Is there something else going on? Maybe there was some sort of scam this guy was pulling and needed a vehicle 
vehicle that looked like a cab. Yeah. You know, right at this point, I think everything's on the table in terms of the overall motive, but we know that the offender took advantage of the financial aspect. Absolutely. Let's talk about the forensics and specifically about the gun, as we've talked about a lot. I'm clueless about guns. I'm pretty sure I know what a revolver looks like. <laughs> so let me show you the gun. It's a Harrington and Richardson H&Rs, what they called it, revolver that had 32 caliber bullets inside. I don't know if this makes a difference. I know you always like photos, but let me show you a picture of the gun if it's at all helpful. I'm guessing this is sort of just your standard, anybody could have picked it up type of gun. Yeah, you know, this is a typical, you know, H&R is not a firearm that we see much of today. You know, our firearms examiners in the lab, I, I remember them, you know, they would talk about the, the H&Rs. So we would have them in the gun collections, but it wasn't a gun that uh, was being used frequently in shootings uh, in my jurisdiction from the 1970s on, you know, from prior to the 1970s, I don't know. Uh, but this is a, what I'm looking at is a standard revolver, short barrel uh, revolver, 32, you know, it's a smaller caliber. Mm -hmm. But as I've discussed before, I've seen homicides committed with all the standard calibers of handguns. So it is a, it is a lethal weapon, even though it's a smaller caliber. When we start talking about suspects, he utilizes Fort Jackson often to find his fares. And so you're talking about a lot of soldiers who could have come back and, you know, they obviously all know how to use guns. Is this just a very easy, this is a single shot, right? It's not automatic in any way. Do you have to cock it every time you want to shoot? So the the revolver, it, it has an exposed hammer. So you can cock the hammer back and pull the trigger to fire it. But revolvers are also designed that the trigger pull is double action. So when you pull the trigger back, it itself cocks the hammer and rotates a live round in the cylinder underneath where the hammer's going to drop. So that's part of the advance of a revolver over the old muskets that you'd have to load, you know, around in yourself. Uh, revolvers evolved to kind of automate the process. And then the next evolution, of course, are your semi-automatic pistols. Mm -hmm. But in this case here, to fire that shot, the offender could have cocked the hammer back, but then would have had to pull the trigger or could have just pulled the trigger without pulling the hammer back. And then just pulling the trigger would fire the round as well. So does this gun to you say anything about the offender? No, not on the surface, not without doing a much deeper dive in terms of the rarity of this weapon, which right now I'm not suspecting that it is anything unusual, but maybe you might tell me something more down the road. <laughs> we'll have to see, I guess. So the mystery here, just to wrap this up, is that you have this man, John Orner, who has picked up a mystery fare. He is dead. His body's one place, 25 miles away from where his car was found. Tremendous amount of blood loss. So it seems like it happened in the cab. And then we don't have anyone who has spotted anything. There's, of course, no CCTV. There's no cameras in these cabs. I'm sure there's no even divider in the cab like they might have now. That's kind of somewhat of a security option here. So this is, you're right, somebody who's very, very vulnerable. And now we literally have no suspects at the beginning of this investigation. Right. You know, and just to bring up another very, very well-known case, the Zodiac case, his last homicide, Paul Stein was a cab driver. And this is the exact scenario you know, Zodiac is 
likely in the back seat. You know, he reaches over, probably grabs him a little bit and, and shoots him in the head. But he doesn't drive off in the cab or try to dispose of Stein's body. He leaves the, the cab there. But this just underscores, this is the danger of being in this type of service. So we're going to fast forward to about three weeks after his body was found. This is again at night, 11 o'clock at night on March 29th in 1961. There's a highway patrolman who has spotted a man hitchhiking in Newport, Tennessee, which is illegal. I did not know that. You've never hitchhiked before, I'm assuming, have you? No, I... <laughs> even as a kid? No, even as a kid. I mean, we know how old you are, so did you yes. have done it as a kid? No, I, I tell you, I did not hitchhike. But I, yeah. I had, in retrospect, knowing what I know now, I had a very scary situation happen to me. I was out at a mall in Fairfield, Solano Mall, and I was living in Vacaville at the time and decided, well, I'm just going to walk home. And along an isolated stretch in between Fairfield and Vacaville, a man driving a typical serial killer van pulled over and asked me if I needed a ride. Mm. And probably one of the smartest decisions I made was, nope, I'm enjoying the walk. And I just kept going. But in retrospect, it's like, why is he pulling over to you know pick up a teenage boy? Well, he probably is a very dangerous individual. That sounds terrifying to me. This is a man who's hitchhiking, and this, again, is Newport, Tennessee. And the officer tells this guy, you know, come over here, I need to talk to you. And the officer says his intention was to arrest this man for hitchhiking. So he pats him down. And later on, this is going to be a little bit of a technical point here in that the man who's being patted down has said, this is an unlawful search. And the officer said, listen, I was going to arrest him. It's typical for us to pat him down to look for weapons. Yeah. And the person here, the hitchhiker here says, no, this was not right. He could have just put me in this cab. What is the nuances here? Are I know there must be. You're shaking your head. As long as it's not just a... Uh, if the officer had determined that the hitchhiker had committed a misdemeanor in his presence mm-hmm. and made the decision to arrest, that incident to arrest, there can be a search of that person for officer safety. And this is also where contraband is often discovered, you know, whether... You have weapons that are are hidden on the person or you have, back in the day, the baggies of dope, which would have been a big deal, mm-hmm. or other illegal objects. But that is a standard practice that is, there's so many examples of officers who have failed to thoroughly search an arrestee to have that arrestee pull a gun later on or do something else. It can cost the officer his life or somebody else their life if they fail to do an adequate search. Well, this officer did, and this officer found a 32 caliber H&R revolver, just like the one that killed John Orner. And the hitchhiker's name was Edward Freiberger. What do you think about this just from the onset? Okay, so the patrol officer likely has no idea about evidence in John Orner's homicide. He is going through his routine, stop, search. I've recovered a firearm. Now this guy, imagine it's illegal for this guy in South Carolina in 1961 to have a, possess a firearm, probably concealed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so now there's another criminal charge that is being put on the booking sheet. Yep. And that gun is being booked 
and uh, submitted as evidence subsequent to arrest. Mm-hmm. So at some point, somebody within the agency or, you know, in 61, the lab, likely not, is going, hold on. We've got a case involving that very make and model of revolver. Here's how they make the connection. He was arrested for carrying arms. So you're right. This was illegal. His gun was confiscated. He was taken to jail. They asked Freiberger, Edward Freiberger, about himself. He was 18 years old in 1961. And he was a private stationed at Fort Jackson in Columbia, South Carolina. They start researching him. He has gone AWOL several times, marked absent is what they say, which I'm not sure that's a very nice way of saying gone AWOL. He's gone AWOL three times in March of 1961, so he's sort of vanished. The dates are March 1st, March 16th, and the 22nd of March. March 1st was the day that Orner's body was found. Okay. This doesn't look very good. No, and and now Freiberger is repeatedly going out Mm -hmm. off the fort, and he's found by law enforcement hitchhiking. I start to suspect that Freiberger may be committing multiple crimes. Do we have other homicides related to John's case at this point, or that's the lone homicide that we know of? He doesn't have much of a record. I'll tell you the record (laughs) that he does have. Freiberger was finally on his last AWOL, which is how they caught him. He was going home to Indiana. He had had enough of the Army. And because he had disappeared several times before, he had actually done a stint at Fort Leavenworth, which is a military correctional facility in Kansas, for going absent without leave. So that is his whole record, though. No violent crime, no murder, no robbery, no nothing. And I know what you're going to say is that that doesn't mean anything. But it does mean something that there's nothing else in his record except saying, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore with the Army. Right. Well, you know, John's homicide, I think, speaks volumes. John's on his way home and somehow picks up a customer who is armed with a 32 caliber H&R revolver and gets shot in the back of the head. Mm-hmm. The M.O. utilized by the offender in John's case is matching what the patrol officer is seeing Freiberger do. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, was Freiberger out there Not necessarily to commit another homicide, though that's possible, but possibly to maybe get some more money, even though he's saying, well, I'm on the way home and I'm done with the army. Well, that is just a story. You know, he may be taking advantage of somebody who is willing to stop the car and then he's going to rob him. So we think that maybe Freiberger was hitchhiking or something, flagged him down, and that's what happened. Right now, I'm thinking, uh, assuming you haven't told me if this 32 h and r revolver, I don't think you've told me it has matched the evidence from John's homicide yet. Well, there is the twist. Oh, here it we go. It is very complicated. <laughs> it becomes complicated. And then I really need your help because, you know, I am <laughs> not ballistic savvy at all. That's where things get complicated. And that's where I need you to put your ballistics thinking cap on. Okay. Just from the beginning, Freiberger has an alibi, which is a fellow soldier at Fort Jackson on the night that Orner was murdered. He went AWOL the next day, but there's a soldier, and I don't know, Marin, our researcher, couldn't find a lot of details, and I followed up and couldn't find a ton of details about this alibi either. But we have a soldier who says, this guy was with me 
you know, up until we all went to bed. It seems squishy enough for the district attorney in Columbia, South Carolina to say, "Eh, I don't know, we need to keep investigating this guy. It's too much of a coincidence. That being said, a 32 is a common gun, right? Well, in this day and age, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a caliber that is seen frequently in crime, though, again, I have had cases involving a thirty two. But in 1961, I don't know. Hmm. It's a, a completely different era in terms of gun violence here in the United States. So I don't know what was being commonly used to commit this type of crime. Wouldn't you suppose, though, that the Army is not using a 32 revolver. Doesn't he have access to other guns that he probably is assuming won't be traced? Well, most, yeah, most certainly the military weaponry is, is very different. And I'm not familiar with anybody that's going to be issuing something like an H&R 32 revolver to military. It may be it's a secondary weapon, you know, mm-hmm. an ankle gun in case you have to resort to a hidden weapon because your primary weapons are no longer operational. Mm-hmm. But it would be more of the military-issued weapons, what was the everyday access to those? How frequently are they audited? Were they something that would really stand out if they had been used to commit a homicide or or a shooting? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, So there may be a reason to use a, a private weapon versus something that was issued to you. You're right. Two things that are not in Freiberger's favor. One is that they found out that he was staying at a hotel in close proximity to the vehicle. So a little circumstantial evidence. It shows that he was nearby where this vehicle was. And the other thing was that it looks like he went to a pawn shop in downtown Columbia the day of the murder and bought this 32 caliber H&R revolver. Coincidence? I think not. I don't know. <laughs> Coincidences happen. That, well, that's, you know, that's really the point I want to make is these are circumstances. And, you know, circumstances, of course, are very significant to pay attention to. But fundamentally, in this case, there is firearms evidence that was recovered from John's head or from the cab. Was it a through and through shot? Did you indicate that? It said that they found fragments within his body, in his head. So no. Okay. So at autopsy, they recover these fragments. And assuming that some of these fragments were intact enough, a microscopic exam could be done to look at the marks that the barrel left on these bullet fragments Mm -hmm. and compare them to a test fire from Freiberger's own gun to see if it matches the homicide evidence. And that's what I'm waiting to hear. If they did that, and then now it's not just a circumstantial case, now there's a physical evidence aspect to the case. Well, let's talk about the procedure because I'm not sure we've actually really explored the procedure about how you would take a gun and get those same marks and then compare the suspect's gun to the fragments that were found within the victim. Let me tell you what my guy, Oscar Heinrich, would have done. So I actually pulled this from American Sherlock because it reminded me so much of this. This was a case about a man who had been suspected of shooting and killing his former boss. And this guy's name was Martin Colwell. So I wrote, Oscar pointed Colwell's gun, the 38 revolver that likely killed McCarthy at a barrel of paraffin wax and fired into it once. A bullet exploded from the gun embedding into the wax. Oscar waited, and soon he carefully cut it from the thick material and soaked it in gasoline to dissolve the paraffin. 
Now the bullet found in this man's coat would show the gun's unique markings. So these are rifling marks that we're talking about, right? Seems like an odd way of doing it, but I think that was probably pretty standard for ballistics in the 1920s. Right, you know, and and I have heard of the paraffin method to, to capture test fires out of bullets, but in this day and age, we just use water. So you shoot into water? We shoot into water. So, you know, at my lab, we had a very, very old vertical water tank outside. It's literally just a custom-built vertical pipe that the firearms examiners would take the guns, load them with ammunition, and shoot straight down into the water. The water slows the bullets down very rapidly, and then the bullets just settle down into a cup, and it's just like uh, getting water out of a well. Okay. That cup is attached to a rope, and you pull it up, and now you've got the test fire of the bullets that would have the rifling marks. And then the the rifling is the class characteristics of the barrel. You know, it's like the tread pattern of a shoe. Mm-hmm. Many, many, many guns, the same make and model will have the same rifling marks. But during the manufacturing process and then subsequent use of the gun, you get other random marks inside the barrel that transfer onto the bullet. This is what a firearms examiner can use to say this bullet was fired from this gun. So now you have the test fires, whether you've collected it from paraffin or ballistic gel or even the water tanks, and you mount that up on a microscope. This is your standard from the evidence gun. Mm -hmm. And then you take the bullets recovered from the body or the bullet fragments, in John's case, mount that on a microscope, and now you line up and look to see where do I have these matching stria. Because if you imagine this bullet is going down the barrel, if you have, let's say, just a burr on the inside of a barrel, and, and this is just really trying to simplify things, and that bullet, passes by that burr sticking out of the side of the barrel, there's going to be a scrape, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when you have thousands of these random burrs inside the barrel, in essence, you get almost like a barcode-looking type of series of scrapes, Hmm. which are called the stria. And that's what the examiner, the examiner is looking at the rifling. Does the rifling match up the class characteristics? And then they will go down into these uh, individualizing characteristics, the the stria. And in this day and age, it was very different in 61. Mm -hmm. There's now standards in terms of how much of these stria have to match in order for an examiner to say, yes, this firearm fired this bullet. So that is how they would have done it back then. They would have taken Freiburger's 32 H&R revolver, fired it into water or paraffin, ballistic gel, something that preserves that test-fired bullet, Mm -hmm. and then do this microscopic comparison on a comparison microscope. Well, all that sounds very valid to me. And unfortunately, in 1961, it did not work initially in this case. Now, one thing I am going to tell you that I'm sure will make you very happy is this is a case that spanned 40 years because of this evidence. Some bullet fragments recovered from John Orner's head has stretched this case out over 40 years. Huh. Okay. The fragments were inconclusive. They could not make a match with the 32 that was found on Edward Freiberger. Okay. To make things more complicated... There's a tip where the police go to a house that was owned by an elderly man named Alonzo Dreyer. And Dreyer has a gun that is also a 32 caliber H&R revolver. 
Now, how they make this connection and they go to Dreyer, I don't know other than a tip. But the police are pretty convinced that this gun might also be a gun that potentially was used in this case instead of Freiberger's gun. Alonzo Dreyer was this elderly man. I seriously doubt he pulled off this crime. But upon interviewing people who knew him and who were in and out of the house, there were an awful lot of sketchy people coming in and out of this house. He says, I don't think anybody took my gun and did anything with it. But a number of known thieves and robbers, including members of his own family, had come in and out of this house. And it was enough evidence for them to test it. And there was an expert that said that it is very likely that this is actually the gun, that it is not Freiberger's gun. And they were so certain the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division SLED, because I don't want to keep saying it over and over again, we'll call it SLED. SLED was so certain that they wrote a letter to Herbert Hoover, who was the FBI director, that said, we think that this is the gun. It is very possible this is the gun. And this throws a wrench into the potential prosecution of Freiberger because now you have two guns and you have dueling experts. No, absolutely. You know, that's that's a major hurdle that the prosecution, if they truly believe Freiberger is responsible for John's homicide, now they have a massive problem on their hands from a physical evidence standpoint because if that is presented in front of, you know, 12 jurors, and they go, oh, hold on, <laughs> you know, the, the murder weapon is likely out of this other guy's house, you know, not the one that Freiberger had. I mean, they could be facing an acquittal. Mm-hmm. Now, we've only talked about the firearms evidence. You know, Freiberger's gun and this other gun could be evaluated. This is a short-range shot into the back of John's head. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the distance is, but I imagine it's either going to be contact, near contact. Mm -hmm. With that range shot, there's, you know, one of the things that happens that people don't don't recognize is that the power of a close-range shot to the head with all those gases can fragment hair. So you get these hair fragments that can eventually be deposited onto the gun itself. Mm-hmm. And then you can also, if the range is close enough, is you get back spatter out of that entry wound of blood and or brain matter onto the gun, onto the shooter's hands, etc. So now, of course, I'm wondering, did they look for that type of evidence Back in 1961, it would not have been something that was esoteric back then. Mm -mm. Is there blood spatter on this gun? If they did, they didn't report it. They didn't find it. Okay. If they did. And that's a big if. So Heinrich's time is in the 20s. And of course, they're testing for blood even then. But you're right. I mean, you have to have that mindset of saying, we know the physics of firing a gun behind someone's head, that there'll be that backsplash and it will go into the barrel of the gun wherever. All I can tell you is this. We have a bunch of experts, including a renowned Army firearms examiner who also said it's inconclusive. You cannot tie Freiberger's gun to this particular crime. So we have an array of people who are saying inconclusive, inconclusive. It's likely to be this other gun. And they cannot link any firearm to John Orner's 1961 homicide and the case goes cold. Uh, okay, so again, now we're still focusing in on the firearms-related evidence. Right. 
That's the only evidence they have. I know you're so funny. I think if you keep asking me, you're going to, I'm going to go, oh yeah, I forgot. (laughs) No, they don't have it. There's no fingerprints. You know, the cab is a crime scene. That's right. You process that cab as a crime scene. You're trying to find associative evidence that the offender has left behind. Of course, fingerprints are huge, Mm -hmm. but also trace evidence. And then the offender is taking evidence on their person with them, maybe unknowingly, such as not only is the gun in the shooter's hand potentially going to have this back spatter from that entry wound to the back of John's head, Mm -hmm. but also the clothing could potentially have it, a sleeve. You know, so there's there's so much that at least within modern CSI work that would be looked for to try to determine whether or not Freiberger was responsible or not. The firearms evidence, if, if he's got the murder weapon, if that was linked, of course, that's huge. Mm-hmm. But if it's inconclusive, which we deal with that today, mm-hmm. okay, but... You know, the victim's blood or brain matter was found on the shooter's right sleeve. Then that's compelling evidence, too. They got nothing. Uh, No fingerprints, nothing. It's this gun and that's it. But I'll tell you, you and I get excited about forensic evidence that's been preserved. So did Richland County, which is Columbia, South Carolina's county. In 97, so this is 36 years after John Orner's murder, they launched a cold case unit. Took three more years for them to reopen this case. Okay. That's what I mean. This is decades long. This goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. So there were problems. There's pluses and minuses, which I know I could probably even hint at, and you'll say, yes, the pluses and minuses are the original detectives and the witnesses and even Freiberger's alibi have all died. Sure. Because it's a 35-year you know, year span, 36-year span. The plus side is technology has gotten, obviously, much better with forensics and with ballistics. So they have preserved the three bullet fragments and both guns, the Dreyer gun, who was the old man, and the Freiberger gun. I assume Dreyer's probably not around anymore, Mr. Dreyer, but Freiberger is. So investigators focus on these fragments, and there's a lieutenant who worked with SLED's Firearms Identification Laboratory. And he looks at these fragments, and he compares them with the test bullets that he himself fired from both guns. Inconclusive. And he widens it out even more. He says, this could have been fired by Dreyer's gun, this could have been fired by Freiberger's gun, or any similarly rifled firearm of the same caliber. And when you have nothing else, why is Edward Freiberger still a suspect in this case? Because of circumstantial evidence, right? It most certainly would be circumstantial. What the firearms examiner's opinions are informing me is that this gun, and I don't know if it's all H&R 32 revolvers, but they don't mark very well. They don't hmm. mark bullets very well. And, and there are guns that are like that. Uh, you know, a very popular gun that was frequently used in crimes and, and a lot of Osterval shootings are mm-hmm. the Glocks, semi-automatic pistols. Uh, they use a polygonal type rifling versus the land and groove type rifling. It's a different thing. They mark bullets very poorly. And so firearms examiners often cannot conclude that the bullet was fired from this particular Glock. But Glocks mark cartridge cases beautifully. The firing pin impression is amazing. Hmm. So we can associate the cartridge cases very easily to that type of gun. So the make and the model of the gun sometimes 
works in the favor of the offender or the defendant because it marks so poorly just by its design. Well, this was continuing to be confusing now going on 38 years later or so because we have another independent ballistics expert who was hired by the sheriff's department. He came to a definitive conclusion. He said that the striations of one of the bullet fragments was consistent with the test bullets fired from Freiburger's gun. And it was enough to get an indictment. 40 years after John Orner died, they arrest Edward Freiburger, who is 58 years old in 2000. Who was that firearms examiner? John Clayton. Do you know who that is? I've never heard of him before. No. So my, if you want to call him sort of my my predecessor, a, a mentor in some capacity at my lab, John Murdoch, Worldwide noted firearms examiner. During this time frame, I believe he was doing this type of work. You know, he was being pulled in hmm. because of his expertise, both for investigative purposes as well as prosecutorial purposes, but also for the defense. And he would find previous firearms examiners, oh, you blew it. <laughs> you know, you misidentified. Wow. So that's where, you know, I, I don't know this particular firearms examiner in order to be able to say how much veracity I would put on the confidence on on his opinion. Um, but, you know, right now, so you've got Freiburger being arrested and charged. Yep. So this happened in 2000. And this is the same year when John Clayton examines the bullet fragments. It's the same year that the other experts did it too with the cold case unit. So it's not like this happened last year and there's this huge jump in technology. It's just another opinion. It's a different person's opinion. And to me, what's disturbing about this case, regardless of whether Freiberger was innocent or guilty, is that it really is this one piece of evidence and that's it. And you've got all of these different opinions. So it just seems very misleading in that way. But do you have a different opinion? One of the uh, beauties of firearms evidence is it can be documented. And, you know, photographs are taken. So this firearms examiner, he renders an opinion. He's finding stria that matches. And and so that should have been documented photographically. Mm -hmm. And that is something that can be very easily looked at by other experts, Mm -hmm. as well as, you know, this type of examination can be done over and over and over again. So this is where, you know, for Freiberger's defense, so you've got... This one firearms examiner saying, yeah, his gun, you know, is matching at the Stria. The defense is going to be pulling in another expert to take a look at the very marks that the prosecution's examiner and is going to say, yeah, I agree or no, I disagree. And now Mm -hmm. you do have a, a battle of experts, but you can throw those photos up in court in front of the jury and each expert can say, this is what I am seeing, Mm -hmm. why I can conclude this or why I can eliminate this gun or why I think it's inconclusive. Well, let me tell you about Freiberger 40 years later. So when he was 18 and initially a suspect, you know, he was this kid who was constantly going AWOL with the army. He flash forward 40 years later is 58. He's living on a ranch in Indiana where he was initially from. No criminal record, worked at a factory. He had a quiet life apparently with his wife. They had three children and one of his daughters was a police officer. This doesn't really come into play later, but his son-in-law makes a lot of noise. He's a police captain. He makes a lot of noise about this indictment. When investigators approached Freiberger, he was pissed. (laughs) 
He was like, this is, I can't believe you're even talking to me 40 years later with this stupid evidence. One of the investigators on the case, this is a funny quote, one of the investigators working on the case described him as making no admission, but that his demeanor, his manner of speech and reluctance to remember anything at the time was awesome. He said it was unreal. So he dug in and just said, I'm not working with any of you on this. You're steamrolling me. His son-in-law, the police captain, agreed, chastised investigators all over the place. And he said, there is just no other county in the world where this case would have 40 years later gone to an indictment. And I think from my perspective, I would be evaluating this case from the totality of the circumstantial evidence being used Mm -hmm. against Freiberger. And then I personally would want to see the documentation of the firearms evidence that was used to show that Freiberger's gun was likely the one to have fired the bullets to see if it it would convince me. And then I would probably be talking to firearms examiners that I trust and get their opinions before I would have moved forward with pursuing Freiberger. And I don't know if that's what they did. It sounds like they got the one firearms examiner enrolled with it. Yep. So this goes to trial, I'm assuming. It does. And I'd like you to stop being pole holes for just a second and imagine being a juror in 2002 listening to this trial and this evidence of a prosecutor's expert saying this is a match, potentially showing photos. I don't know, but it was convincing enough for the DA to say, yes, put him on the stand. What would you do hearing as a juror the circumstantial evidence plus this hard forensic evidence presented by the DA? Well, I think as a layperson, let's say Mm -hmm. somebody relatively naive within evaluating cases, and I don't use the term naive to be critical. It's just, you know, most people don't deal with this stuff day in and day out. With the circumstances and with an expert coming in and saying the murder weapon was found in his waistband while he was out hitchhiking, Mm -hmm. then I likely would start leaning towards, I think he is responsible for John's homicide. They agreed with you. The jury found him guilty, and he was sentenced to life in prison. And John Orner's only surviving relative was his stepdaughter, and she just said, I'm so glad it's over. My mother was heartbroken like everybody else over this would be. And this is where things get sort of complicated for me emotionally because you do have this man, this victim, who seems like he was a hardworking guy, supporting his family, working difficult hours in a dangerous sometimes job. He's murdered. You want justice. I don't know if this was the justice, and I will tell you, we are continuing this story. (laughs) There's more to this story. Yeah, yeah, because as I'm you know, just thinking about this case, you you mentioned, you know, they were ecstatic that, you know, they had preserved this evidence, the fragments and the two guns over the years. Did they even bother to take a look for DNA evidence? Right. Did they look at the totality of the potential physical evidence from both guns? Or was it just, well, we're just going to run with with firearms? Because it's possible that even today, one of those guns could still have John's blood or his DNA, you know, inside the barrel. Well, it's been test fired too many times. But there may be some areas on the the, the muzzle of the gun in which DNA could still be recovered. They found blood in the handle of guns before, I think in the grooves of guns too, right? 
Well, depending on the circumstances, you know, how much, you know, if, if you have a, a situation in which you have a lot of blood that coats the gun, you could take a gun apart and find blood that has seeped in the uh, internal mechanisms of the weapon. But typically, without the gun being exposed to large volumes of blood, just this fine spatter, and it's so easy to overlook. And quite frankly, after so many years, it's going to look like rust spots. Okay. And so it, you, know, you have to understand that time alters the appearance of evidence. It is very surreal. For example, if I pull out, like I can think of a case, it was a 1966 homicide of a housewife strangled inside her own home. And I pull out this dress that she was wearing in 1966 and first, it's like this uh, time capsule, right? Mm -hmm. Because this was a style that you just don't see today. But also how over time, you see how the various stains on the dress have become either more visible or less visible, depending on the type of stain. And that's something that's been handled appropriately for the last you know, 30, 40 years. Hmm. So like this firearm, this is where... The hope would be is that that firearm passed through an experienced biologist's hands first to try to recover any potential DNA that could be associated back to the victim mm -hmm. before it went to a firearms examiner who's not going to be paying much attention to DNA evidence. They're going to take that gun and they want to shoot it. And they'll document it. They want to shoot it. <laughs> and, wow. You know, and don't get me wrong. I mean, there's, there's firearms examiners that are very evidence conscious, but typically guns in this day and age have already been screened for evidence, like trace evidence and, yeah. and, and blood evidence. So when the firearms examiner gets it, they're just now going to manhandle it in order to get the evidence they need. You know, so that's where part of my assessment, if I were to be pulled into this case today, I would be assessing what was done to this gun. Of course, what was done back in 1961-62 after arrest, because that impacts my evaluation of the evidence today, but also what was done, how thoroughly was it done in 1997 or 2000? And I think that's what's so maddening about cold cases is the way that the evidence is preserved, what tests they already ran, did they use up all of the usable evidence to begin with? I mean, the list goes on and on. And I think that must be very difficult for cold case detectives just to think that you've gotten close to something and realize, right, that the gun was handed over to a ballistics expert who just destroyed the inside of it. And then you've got these missed opportunities. Do you think in 2002 that an analyst's first instinct, though, would be let's swab the gun on the inside for blood? Do you think that this would even be something that would occur to them, that DNA in 2002 would be really a solid piece of evidence? Or are we still kind of new into it? No, we're at a point in 2001, 2002, in which, you know, DNA was uh, commonly being done. But the visualization, the examination of a gun for blood evidence, you know, it's understanding the circumstances of the case. And a good forensic scientist, a good criminalist would understand all the potential evidence that could be present on this gun because of the circumstances, the close range shot to the back of the victim's head. Part of the pet peeve that I have, and this is going to be a little mini rant and a little bit of a, of a soapbox I'm going to get on, is due to some very obvious, almost criminal negligence that some forensic scientists have done over the years that have become very public, but also because of the accreditation and kind of the innocence project stances about how bias 
factors into forensic science. Mm -hmm. Well, forensic scientists can't know anything about the case. So now what you're doing is you're putting the burden on the investigator or on an attorney to make decisions as to what evidence to look for. So now, oh, we've got an old gun. Well, let's compare it to the firearms evidence and doesn't even consider the totality of potential evidence on that weapon. And the forensic scientist doesn't know the circumstances to know, well, no, I should be looking for blood in this case. It's just, I'm now doing a comparison between this gun and the test fires and seeing if it works. Okay. You know, so that's that's part of, if, if we blind our evidence experts too much about the circumstances of the case, evidence is being missed. And I see it all the time. And hmm. this cuts both ways. This cuts to where you are potentially going to have evidence that could exonerate somebody, that could be found by somebody who knows the circumstances of the case and is an evidence expert, or you can find evidence to be able to actually solve the case and get a dangerous person off the street. And we have too many silos within the criminal justice process where it's the blind leading the blind and Hmm. evidence is being missed all the time. Well, let me wrap up this case because it ends in an interesting way as far as I'm concerned. Freiberger has maintained his innocence. He appealed his conviction. Lots of technical points in this appeal. You know, one, it was an illegal search, he says, when he was first patted down and this weapon was found because at the time, the Tennessee law stipulated that the officer was not allowed to search him unless there was a threat or unless he was currently charged with a crime. There was a threat to public safety. Then when the prosecutor questioned him, He said he was stationed at Fort Leavenworth in front of the jury. So people knew what that meant. If you were at Fort Leavenworth, that means you were imprisoned for doing something wrong. He was there for being AWOL, but the prosecutor never clarified that. And then he said, the biggest thing I will say is the ineffective assistance of counsel. And the reason that this case gets turned a little bit on its head is because His attorney, Freiberger's attorney, never brings in the Hoover letter, which I know you probably thought was a minor thing, but this changes the case. The Hoover letter was the letter that said, SLED thinks that it's the other gun. It's not Freiberger's gun. This goes to an appeals court, And the appeals court blew off the wrongful search. They blew off the Fort Leavenworth comment, but they said that that letter would have deeply undermined the foundation of the state's case. That letter to Hoover saying, this guy we don't think did it. It should have been submitted and it didn't. Well, this is a huge transgression by the prosecution in this case. This letter is exculpatory evidence. And, you know, we have case law, Brady v. Maryland, in which it is the obligation of the prosecution to turn over any and all exculpatory evidence under discovery to the defense, to have something that is this significant in its findings, the actual, you know, scientific testing where you have a law enforcement agency writing it. Minimally, it must be turned over to defense, but it also should have been something in which the prosecution should have gone, well, we're putting the brakes on this prosecution and we need to reevaluate whether or not we're going to proceed 
with a criminal trial in this case. I would think, you know, with that type of finding, uh, many prosecutors would have dismissed the case and not meaning that uh, Freiberger would never have been charged with murder down the road. But right now, we don't have enough to say that he is truly responsible outside of some circumstantial evidence. And we're not sure we can convince a jury of 12, you know, that he's guilty based on the circumstances. Well, and I'll tell you, he spent 14 years in prison awaiting all of these appeals because the appeals process is slow as molasses. When the court finally gets a hold of this, the South Carolina court finally gets a hold of this, they say that this letter was crucial. They reverse the denial of post-conviction relief as to this issue, and they remand a new trial. Freiberger has a decision. He can go through another trial, or he can enter an Alford plea for voluntary manslaughter. We know that's a deal where the defendant pleads guilty to a crime, is acknowledging that the DA probably has enough evidence to convict him, but he still can maintain his innocence, and he doesn't have to admit to anything. Yeah. I think he made the right decision. He took the Alford plea, and in 2017, so just six years ago, he is released after 14 years in prison. So the math goes, in 61, he was 18. He's free for 40 years. He goes in at 60, and then he's in prison from 60 to age 74, and then he's released. Yeah, you know, and I don't know what to think about Freiberger uh, in terms of was he responsible for John's homicide or not? It just sounds like... They didn't have a very strong case. The physical evidence wasn't there. You have circumstances that, you know, are interesting. But as I've seen, coincidences do occur. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, I'd really want to, you know, know the totality of the circumstantial evidence that they had against uh, Freiberger in Mm -hmm. order to be able to say, okay, you know, he likely is responsible. But uh, right now, just don't know. You know, I, I would say, yeah, that's, it's kind of a, an unknown with what they have at this point in time. Yep, I agree. This was a messy, messy case. Very rarely am I going to hand you something that's cut and dry. <laughs> Wait, if you, look at the, if you look at the clock and it's 30 minutes in and I'm saying, case closed, <laughs> you can expect that something different is going to happen in the next 30 minutes. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've come to expect that. I, I know I'm going to be, you know, thrown for or <laughs> <laughs> somehow bamboozled and fooled over the course of, of the story, so... Well, I hope to return to South Carolina sometime soon with another case, but we will move forward next week with a new venue and a new time period. Oh, all right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. This has been an Exactly Right production. For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash sources. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Research by Marin McClashen and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Our mixing engineer is Ryo Baum. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Our artwork is by Vanessa Lilac. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow Buried Bones on Instagram and Facebook at Buried Bones Pod. Kate's most recent book, All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder and the Race to Decode the Criminal Mind, is available now. And Paul's best-selling memoir, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, is also available now.
Follow Barry Bones and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase Buried Bones merch.